rather busy. Now he's going to move like right along to McGregor. That's his whole life. You know. So there were a couple of Star Trek Easter eggs in Synchrony that I don't know if you picked up on. I also wasn't sure if they were intentional until I saw the second one. So uh, the uh, terrible hotel room that the old Jason stays in is hotel room number 47. And as you know from doing Trek About for so long, 47 is a number that crops up from time to time in Star Trek. And uh, the flight number that he had written down in the hotel room was flight number 1701. Okay. That's that. That's about the most interesting thing about the episode in my mind. You didn't like this one. I did not like this one. And, I mean, I guess part of me will be talking and trying to figure out why. I will say, this was an episode that, like, I paused and took a bunch of breaks on. Like, I, 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 I it just didn't, it didn't hook me for some reason. Um, part of it. I really like this episode a lot. Okay. Okay, well, sell it to me. What do you like about it? Well, I think a, a part of it is just I'm a sucker for time travel stuff. Okay. I, I enjoy time travel, and I will watch anything with time travel in it. I also just think it's a really, really different kind of episode for the X-Files. It's it's the only episode that we have seen so far that, that deals with time travel or this yeah. kind of time travel. And I mean, certainly things like alien abduction and missing time and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that, but not this kind of thing. And... It also has a lot of really meaningful things to say about the kind of inviability of time or or destiny or something. I don't know. I like it a lot. I also like the feel of it, the look of it, the mood of it. I can't say – I mean I can't say it was a terrible episode, you know, and I liked it fine. It's it's a weird thing where I can accept – monster fungi i can accept alien invasions i can accept you know people telling the future but like time travel for one seems like too like doesn't seem like something that works in this world i don't know why that like this is where my suspension of disbelief got off but um that was part of it like it just didn't seem like a the type of science fiction that works in this series i think my suspension of disbelief on the x-files always breaks down uh when they never lose cell phone reception in the 1990s that's true but i i mean i kind of see where you're coming from i i certainly think that this is a i i guess i i guess the term is kind of like off-brand episode of the x-files like it doesn't feel quite like an x-files episode it kind of feels like a different show but i kind of like that and I also kind of like the fact that this is an episode that the show could have very easily done in the first season. Yeah. And it also would not have been nearly as good. There is a level to which this show is aspiring that it is doing even in very sort of bog standard Monster of the Week episodes. And, you know, the monster in this episode is not Jason, is not anybody. The monster in this episode is sort of the inevitable march of progress and scientific... Yeah. Uh, curiosity and and time and you know i certainly can see your point that this kind of time travel may not necessarily work very well in the x-files universe but at the same time if you think that that's the advantage of a standalone show yes. you can ignore this episode yeah and certainly it has you know the Mulder and scully are Mulder and scully as we know and love them at this point that is again you said this is something they wouldn't have done as well in the first season and all of that work would not have been as grounded that all that work would not have been as grounded but i also think that the look of the show i think that Mm. the way a lot of the scenes are directed you know i'm thinking specifically of the the death scenes and um, yeah you know the 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 revivification scenes of dr yanichi and um uh his girlfriend's name who Lisa, you know, and so I, I like the fact that the show is experimenting still and, and doing really interesting things in terms of the look of it. And I don't know, there's something very poignant about this episode that always gets me. Yeah, uh, uh, that that a future with time travel is something that is so horrible that all of these horrors are nothing in comparison. You know, in other words, the old ma- old Jason feels that avoiding that future is worth all of this pain and horror what pain and horror 
the uh, pain uh, and horror of going back in time and killing people? Yeah, I was going to say, all of the... I mean, poor Dr. Yonichi, he dies really badly. Jason dies pretty badly. Lisa has a lot of bad shit happen to her. Like, all of... You know, the, the, these are not... This is not a happy, good moment. And, you know, even old Jason suffers in his way in this episode. And yet, it feel, he feels this is all worth it in order to avoid the creation of time travel. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think a lot of... A lot of um the the one problem i have with the episode is i'm never really sure why old jason is killing them in this fashion it it doesn't seem necessary for any reason and it also doesn't really seem like it's actually killing them i mean certainly to the the scientific uh yeah. abilities of the day in the 1997 or whenever this episode aired they are for all intents and purposes dead but it is also the fact that they're not dead and that he knows that lisa worked in the what what was that supposed to be like the um a frostbite wing of the hospital or something and that they have this crazy theory and it works out to be true and of course yes dr dr yanichi dies in a horrible fashion by by you know immolating you know he he dies by catching on fire um but lisa quickly figures out the way that would have saved him and frankly that saves her yeah yeah of course but i don't know i just that is the part of it that doesn't make any sense to me because like old jason could just like go buy a gun (laughs) Like, why Why is he doing this? I mean, obviously he's doing it because it's a very dramatic and very memorable, uh, uh, you know, way to kill somebody. And the set pieces in this episode are, are, are memorable. But it doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's true. And, I mean, at first when he's trying to save um, the one guy's life, like, he... he, he... He starts off trying to save the life of the guy who killed by the bus because that way he's going to discredit Jason's research and, you know, stop it that way. Okay, well, uh, that doesn't work out, so he immediately moves to murder rather than, okay, well, what I'm going to try and do is, uh, you know, fuck with Dr. Yonichi's reservation and, you know, somehow get him on a plane back and, you know, make it so that meeting doesn't happen. Or, you know, I'm going to destroy Jason's research. You know, like... I, I, I feel like he goes from the subtle to murder very quickly. Well, yes, but I, I also think that we're supposed to envision him coming from a world 40 years in the future, 50 years in the future, that is absolutely horrible, that he is haunted by living in a, a dystopian nightmare, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that he has come back in time to stop this. And so I don't know necessarily that, um, and also you know, the implication being that, that old Jason worked all this out before he came back in time. So I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. That just seems like part of his plan. But I don't know. I, I, you kind of talked me out of it a little bit because I think that that maybe, maybe why he is killing these people in this fashion by injecting them with this compound that that you know reverses the endothermic reaction in their body or whatever it does uh, is that it's kind of an out for him psychologically. That yeah, he's yeah. not actually killing these people. Like, yes, for all intents and purposes, he is because he doesn't think that that the medical science of the day can revive them. And but particularly logically, if... it's it's an out for him. You know, he he's yeah. not killing these people. Yeah, but I mean, you know, a saw is mentioned with the security guard. You know, for example, and so so it is clear they're going to you know try an autopsy of the body in a way which will kill them or you know again in the case of it's not like they he leaves thawing instructions with Do- Dr. Yunichi or anything like that right but that's what i'm saying yeah. that that he is he is killing them but it's a psychological out for him okay. that that he is not actually killing them which is of course a cop out but i think it's the way in which he's trying to justify it yeah, that makes sense. Um, Whatever happens to them after he freezes them is out of his hands. That's <laughs> kind of how he's viewing it, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. You know, uh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to seal them up in a gigantic bowl and, you know, we'll leave food for them. But if they starve to death and drown, you know, it wasn't my fault. Exactly right. It's washing his hands of the situation. Yeah. And I, I like that. I think it's a really interesting concept. And I also. I'm really intrigued by I wish the episode had gone a little bit more into why exactly the world is so horrible. I don't I mean, I can imagine why and maybe the episode is better for not doing it. Yeah. But, you know, it doesn't seem like that would cause something this profound. I mean, can anybody go back in time? Is it that easy to do? Uh, I don't know. It, it doesn't you know, that that part of it is a little 
that part of it is a little unclear to me as well. But I think you just have to kind of take that as where this episode yeah. is coming from. That that is the plot of this episode, and you either have to go with it or you're or you're not going to enjoy this episode. I mean, it brings up with the you know the Terminator problem of you know if we haven't met any time you know if they're sending time one time traveler, they're going to send a time traveler to stop the time traveler from stopping time travel. And you know why is there only one time traveler that we met? If time travel is so. Uh, widespread that it exists why haven't we seen so many of them you know kind of a thing it could i mean i wonder an episode that would have had a second you know that would have had for example a time traveling lisa in it again this is me rewriting an episode which you know people might have problems with but you know i he's one perspective on why time travel is bad it would be interesting maybe to have another perspective on that but then again maybe and it's that true would... i mean we and he might be full of shit. I mean, I think that's yeah. like the other reason why I like the episode. It's, it's, I don't know that I, I mean, I'm kind of like all over the place with this episode, but I think that I, I kind of like the ambiguity of it. You know, yeah. it, we don't really know. We have Jason's word to go by, but the X Files is not a show that necessarily, um, believes in believing people it's like trust but verify that's always been the x-files uh you know modus operandi and so maybe he's just doing this because he and lisa got divorced yeah like we don't know and i like that like it's it's i think that the plot itself and the mechanics of the plot and the mechanics of time travel and all of that stuff i mean if you want a well thought out time travel story like don't watch synchrony go watch looper or something but it is the case that i just like the the feel and the mood and the texture of this episode a lot because i mean frankly all of i i you know i don't really talk about guest star actors a lot but i think that you know the 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 man who plays young jason and the man who plays old jason are both really really good um you really kind of get a sense that you know they don't really seem like the same person but there's a there's a real haunted quality to old Jason's performance that I I really like. Yeah. And I also think that I like the the ways in which the episode plays around with our expectations of the Mulder and Scully dynamic as well. Mm. Yeah, we learn about Scully's graduate thesis a bit and it talks about some weird physics that would seem to allow for time travel. And, you know, he does have, you know, Mulder does say, you know, you were a lot more open-minded when you were younger, which is, again, an interesting twist on their dynamic. Yeah, and I, I think that, you know, Scully always has a good answer for, for Mulder, whether or not he's he's yeah. complimenting her or, or not. And, of course, her answer is, well, even though time travel is theoretically possible, the energy requirements would be enormous, yeah. and so you would never be able to survive it. And that's kind of also what the episode hinges on, that it's this creation of this this enzyme or compound that in conjunction with the invention of time travel or the discovery that time travel is possible makes actually traveling in time yeah. possible. And that seems really interesting to me. And then... Also that the end of the episode talks about, you know, this is an interpretation of time travel that I, I don't think I've seen before, which is that like the, the the normal interpretation of time travel is either like the Star Trek interpretation of time travel, which is that there is one timeline, it is invi- inviolable, that if something happens in the timeline, you have to go back and fix it. And this is kind of thrown out the window a little bit with the existence of the J.J. Abrams universe, but I'm just ignoring that yeah. for the sake of argument. Because uh, that's really an outlier in the way time travel works in, in the 50 years of Star Trek. And then the other interpretation of time travel is the sort of like, you know, alternate universe interpretation where if you go back in time to try and stop something and you're successful and then you return to your timeline, your timeline is the same, but you've created a new offshoot of a timeline. And the interpretation at this at the end of this episode is is separate from either of those, which is that you can go back in time and change things, but that time itself has some sort of self-correcting mechanism yeah. that is going to still cause the thing that you stop from happening. And I don't know. I find that a very interesting concept because to me what this episode really is about is about fate. Yeah, and I mean, in a way, that's sort of... 
this episode implies that scientific progress goes from one lone genius who in very one particular way, you know, Newton hits the apple and then we discover gravity, right? Uh, but the way science actually is is that somebody else would have discovered gravity at that point, you know? Maybe, the, you know, and the implication is that, you know, Lisa is the one who discovered this chemical, you know, and perfected it and figured out how to make it actually happen and that everything does go from her theories. And so she didn't learn it in this conjunction with Dr. Yanichi and Jason, but that she does stumble onto it on her own and that, you know, time travel almost kind of does happen as it is. And there is, of course, the grandfather paradox and that, you know, without... You know, with a dead Jason, Jason never grows up to be the old man to go back in time, and so that therefore the old man never goes back in time to stop time travel, and so time travel happens. Like, there is part of, I mean, it, it does go with the messiness that all time travel stories eventually hit into, uh, where you just, again, have to kind of go with it, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really what it comes down to, is you just have to go with it, and if you don't go with it, then you're not going to enjoy this episode. Yeah. Go with it, Scully. Um, to quote Taste of Disby shows, the best episode of X-Files. Well, and I, I think the other thing, too, with this episode that I appreciate a lot is is the way that the, the show treats, um, treats Lisa as well. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, the X-Files is a show of the 90s, and does it treat its female characters well? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it's never really a question that, women are like the equal and capable of uh, capable than men or perhaps even more capable. And it's a nice inversion of the, you know, woman behind the scenes who was really the, the brain behind everything because Lisa is not the woman behind the scene. She is very clearly the, the smarter of the two. Yeah. And Jason is kind of a bumbling idiot. I mean, he seems smart and he seems intelligent he has a PhD and he teaches at MIT and everything like that. And he's certainly a very intelligent person, but Lisa is smarter than him, and Lisa is the one who, at the end of the day, is driving this forward. Yeah, and I don't think it's also incidental that her medical team, when she's reviving, you know, is largely women. I mean, that that is also something yeah. I noticed in there. Um, yeah, this is a show that understands that girls can be scientists just as much as boys, and frankly, I like that. We like that. I don't like it. We like that, I just said. Well, and I, I think the last thing really to talk about before we move on to Small Potatoes is the other thing I really like about the episode is just watching Mulder and Scully like actually do some investigating, which is something mm. that we don't see that much anymore. They, they're they they're not necessarily, you know, I remember early on when we started covering the X-Files, you know, we kind of divided episodes between Episodes where Mulder and Scully were sort of driving the pot, the plot and episodes where Mulder and Scully were just sort of along for the ride. And while I think this is more an example of the latter, where I don't think Mulder and Scully have much to yeah. do with the resolution of this plot, the episode and the X-Files in general has gotten a lot better at making it appear that Mulder and Scully are actually doing something. And they're investigating, they're figuring things out, they're making leaps of logic, they're having their classic Mulder and Scully dynamic, but they don't actually ever really resolve anything, and they're kind of chasing their own tail in a lot of this episode. Yeah. But I don't think you notice it while you're watching it, and the the dialogue is so snappy at this point that it almost doesn't matter. And in some ways, chasing one's own tail is the literal theme of the episode, so whether or not they're investigating, this is happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's true, too. But it's, I don't know, because, yeah, on the on the one hand, that's certainly true. But on the other hand, you could make an argument that it's almost further than that. Because if you take the episodes ending as gospel, there almost is no way that Mulder and Scully would have been able to stop this. Yeah. Okay. Like Jason was never going to be successful, but Mulder and Scully were also never going to be successful mm. because being successful means that time travel is not invented. And if Mulder's theory at the end of the episode is correct, time travel has to be invented because it was invented. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm getting flashbacks to Primer and that's really not a good thing, but that's that's a, a different story. 
Well, did I convince you? Did I did I do a, a valiant attempt at convincing you that this is a worthy episode of the X Files? Again, and, and I mean, we've used the phrase baseline competence a lot, and you know, it's something that sounds a lot more damning with faint praise than it is. But you know, even at even when the show is bad, it's a good show. I'd say now at this point, I did like. Yeah, the but you. You sidestep my question. You still think this episode is bad. It's not one of the stronger episodes that I've seen. It's not, you know, it, it, it's not Kaddish and it's not uh, Small Potato, so. Okay, fair enough. All right, well, let's move on to Small Potatoes then. But before we do that, I do want to take a quick opportunity to remind all of you that this podcast that you're listening to is listener-supported. If you would like to give us a little bit of your money each and every month, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. All right, small potatoes. Take it away, Richard. Well, you lied to me. You told me there were no more Darren Morgan episodes, and this is very much a Darren Morgan episode, even him guest starring in it. But um, yeah, this is Vince, Mo- Vince Gilligan doing his attempt at it, and I think... You know, Chris Carter's tried to write Darren Morgan episodes. Glenn Morgan's tried to write Darren Morgan episodes. I think Gilligan is the first to be actually successful at it and to also give us an episode that's in his own voice. Again, Gilligan has finally clicked. He's he's he He's become the writer that's going to create Breaking Bad. He has become one of the preeminent X-Files writers at this point. This was a wonderful episode. <laughs> it's really good, and... I mean, there's so much about this episode that is great. And I think that, like, what makes it great is the last 10 minutes where yeah. it, it, it it ends, right? Like, in a normal X-Files episode, at minute 30, that would have been the end of the episode. And then you get this extra 10 minutes that starts in on this very sort of, like, surreal and at the same time moving examination of like scully as a person Mulder as a person even though it's not really Mulder, and of the Mulder and scully relationship yeah and you're like what what did i just see i mean this is an episode that was written for everybody who's shipping the two of them as a way of in a way i mean it's deconstructing Mulder and scully shipping in a lot of ways oh it totally is i mean it, it it definitely is trying to give them what they want without actually giving them what they want, yeah. which I think is is the kind of thing that you could only do in the X Files, right? And while also saying that for them to get what they want, they would have to be in a way one of them would have to, at least one of them would have to be a completely different person because there is no way that the two of them would get into a romantic relationship being the same person. It would require a major character change in them. To to a certain degree, yes, and, and 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 to a certain degree, no, because I think part of what the final scene is saying is that mm. I mean, taking it aside from Mulder and Scully, right? That people in relationships, no matter if it's a romantic relationship or a friend or work colleague or your neighbor or whatever, like people project onto others what they th- what they think they want to see a lot of the time, mm. and. You know, this episode is all about playing with the expectations of objective reality in a sense and, and, and kind of thinking about the ways in which objective reality is kind of a lie. And which is, you know, like a heady topic for, for the X-Files, but not necessarily one that is outside of its wheelhouse. Yeah. And I think that to a certain degree that that final scene between Mulder and Scully is really about the fact that Scully wants this. Well, and Mulder, yeah. but Mulder doesn't want this. Well, yeah, neither of them, in a way, neither of them is willing to make the first move. And once one of them is, the other will reciprocate. And I mean, frankly, from that move, Scully is not going to say to him, listen, you know, I had a moment with him, but that wasn't because of him. That was because, you know, I saw you, you know, that that's kind of my latent feelings. You know, if, if Scully had said, like, listen, I would... I wouldn't have gone out with him even saying the same exact things, but you, somebody I'm comfortable with, uh, you know, brought that out in me. I don't know. Neither of them is going to make that first move. Well, yeah, sure. But I I mean, I think that also raises another question about Eddie Van Blunt. And maybe, you know, we'll obviously return back to that final scene because it's really the, the meat of the episode. But 
I don't know. Eddie Van Blunt's an interesting character to me, obviously, as you said, guest starring, uh, you know, played by Darren Morgan. And I don't know if he had any input on the script or not. I mean, it feels kind of churlish to ask that question because Vince Gilligan obviously is a very yeah. good writer and he does a very good job with this episode. But uh, it is the case that, part, you know, this episode has so many layers and, and, and part of what it is trying to, to say or trying to do here, I think, is that, you know, again, with in terms of objective reality, uh, the objective reality is that Eddie Van Blunt is charming. Eddie Van yeah. Blunt is intelligent. Eddie Van Blunt is the kind of person that people would want as a friend. But because he's kind of a schlubby guy who maybe is a little bit off-putting, nobody sees that in him. And when he is able to, and also part of it too, that Eddie Van Blunt, of course, is probably having some some self-esteem issues, some issues of confidence. Well, yeah. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's any uh, real... I don't think it's any real mystery why he chooses to be sort of like the square jawed, tall, in fit, handsome man, right? Like that's kind of a, a yeah. joke at this point. But it, it is the case that when he does portray or pretend to be those kinds of men, he is very, very charming, suave, makes women feel at ease, well, all those kind of things. But but those things are within him. It's not it's not that he is getting those things from the men he is pretending to be well you know yes and no i i i i think it's less that he's getting them from the men he's pretending to be and more he's able to read these women and figure out what they want i mean it, it, it he he he's able to see what exactly scully will respond to um the woman uh at the beginning you know the star wars lady um you know it talks about how he saw star wars with her as much as I think it's kind of an open question as to whether Eddie Van Blunt likes Star Wars on his own or not. But what's clear is that she likes it and he's he recognizes that and he recognizes that, you know, the thing to attract her will be being into Star Wars in a way, if that makes sense. I, I, I No, it makes sense. I mean, I, 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 I think what you're saying is that in the same way that Eddie Van Blunt can mimic the, the appearance of a people, uh, he is also able to to mimic, you know, emotional reactions or interests or, or a bunch of other things right and, yeah what someone's looking but i don't for. know that that's a little bit of a that's a little bit more of a cynical interpretation of this episode than i think i mean i i, I think we may have a disagreement here i mean i eddie blunt eddie van blunt to me and this episode in particular feel very sweet like I, I don't feel threatened by him at all and you know i'm I'm certainly not arguing that that what he did yeah is 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 good that is a bad thing he did, <laughs> but there's something moving about him to me. There's something very pure about him to me. I don't get a vibe of this is a sexual predator from him. Well, you know, that's that that's part of his charm. It's working on you even. Um, but no, there there is a degree of, you know, part of it is... Eddie feels himself as somebody who doesn't have much and he needs to, you know, but I mean, how many people have said, oh, if I only had, you know, this advantage and this advantage. I mean, he even says as much to Mulder, like, if I looked with like you, if I had what you had, if I had a woman in my life who was, uh, who trusted me the way Scully trusts you and all of that kind of stuff, like, I would do so much more with that. And, you know, he views Mulder as squandering everything because I, I feel like Eddie Van Blunt doesn't have the ability to do any of that on his own. He doesn't necessarily have the looks. He doesn't have the smarts. He doesn't have the, you know, to be able to, you know, the best that he can do on his own is being a janitor who's single. You know, when he is... uh taking uh when he is assuming qualities of other people both physical and otherwise he does a lot better with himself he can go a lot further yeah but how much of that is how much of that is true and how much of that is is him uh not allowing himself to try yeah because let's face it you know uh with his looks darren morgan became one of the preeminent x-files writer he acted in a television show like he's done all right for himself you know in a way that's kind of an excuse it well no it's a it's a total excuse and and that's what i'm trying to get at is that you know 
regardless of of what Eddie Van Blunt looks like, and of course, I mean, like, I think that uh, I, I love the actress who plays. Um, I forget the woman's name, the act, the the character's name, but the woman who's impregnated by Luke Skywalker. Yeah, uh, it, you know, she is so judgmental about Eddie Van Blunt and has this immediate reaction, which is just like ew. And I do think that it, it's it's a tension, right? Because. And again, it's it's a tough episode because I'm certainly not saying that what Van Blunt did was was right. No, what he did was reprehensible. Of course, that that he, uh, you know, essentially conned women into having sex with him. I and, think the uh, legal term is rape by deception. Yeah, yeah, and so uh, it's not a good thing, of course, and and I'm not saying it is, but. I don't know that, I mean, and I'm not even saying that he doesn't really understand what he's doing, but to a certain degree, I think that he almost loses sense of who he is in these moments and that he doesn't think that he's these men, but that for all intents and purposes, he is. And so I don't think that he thinks that what he's doing is that bad. And well, certainly it's not as bad as if he like didn't have this ability and was like tying these women down and raping them by force. I mean, that is, that would be very traumatic for the women. And certainly like, even if you told these women what happened to them, I don't know that they would believe it. Yeah. And I mean, there is the point when, you know, they're first interviewing him uh, where he's saying, you know, well, gee, like they wanted kids except for Scott, you know, star Wars lady. They, you know, as far as they knew, they had a nice evening with their husband and then they had a child like, who was hurt you know nobody was hurt in that and you know on on the one hand again rape by deception is a crime for a reason on the other hand it is a weird logic that i understand where he's coming from on that um so i don't know um because i i think that part of it too i mean key to key to it as well and understanding because this is an episode that is really like, do you buy into the psyche of Eddie Van Blunt or not? Because I think key to to understanding where he's coming from is where when he pretends to be his own father, and you know he's saying all of these like kind of horrible things about his himself. Um, but you can tell that he's really good at mimicking his father. He's really good at, at at mimicking his his voice and mannerisms and all of that stuff, and even his outlook. I mean, to a certain degree, he doesn't seem like he was given a lot of uh, love, encouragement, or attention as a child. And again, this is yeah. not an excuse for you know sexual assault, but he is a, a very conflicted person. And I think that if he had been in a more supportive environment when he was a child he might have had a better life as Eddie Van Blunt. Yeah, well, uh, you know, number one, we also have to understand that we never meet the father. We meet his impression of his father. And, you know, that's pretty... I, 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 I think that has to be mentioned. But, you know, also, you know, put it this way. The other parents of these children, they have the surgery on their babies pretty much as soon as it's... uh you know, able to be done safely. You know, the Star Wars lady mentioned that, you know, yeah, I just got to wait six months and then I'll be able to get it taken care of. And it's, you know, a nothing thing. Uh, his father didn't do that. Yeah, he, this is a kid who had a tail until he was a young teenager, right? Like, there, there, there is a reason that he wasn't really, he doesn't really feel, him, see himself as that popular. And yeah, no, I, I mean, I do agree there is a sadness to him. This is a very damaged person. He is not doing this out of malice or cruelty or anything like that, but just out of a desire to be someone else than who he is. And that and that certainly doesn't excuse his behavior, of course. No. I mean, I think that, that, that not doing something out of malice and, and thinking you're doing the right thing and resulting yeah. in, in hurting someone else, I mean— Maybe the latter is a bit more justifiable, but it's still not good. Put and... it this way, the right thing for him to do was move to another state and, you know, excuse his scar as, you know, I had a mole removed and that's it, you know? like Yeah, yeah, because I think that, you know, but again, I mean, if you go back to the idea that this episode is all about objective reality and subjective reality, you know, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we are all... We are all in some respects affected by and, and, and playing roles for, for different people in our lives. And we also, 
we react differently to different people. We we react differently to, to different situations mm-hmm. in terms of how we portray ourselves, how comfortable we feel, how much we put ourselves out on the line or not. And yeah, there's certainly a baseline level of self confidence in terms of personality that, that that everybody is born with. I mean, you know, there are certain people with yeah. you know really bad anxiety disorders and things like that that would never do something um, that puts themselves in any sort of uh, emotional or or you know psychological jeopardy. But then there are, and what I'm talking about is just like talking to someone at a bar or yeah. whatever. Um, and then there are people, of course, that are like extremely extroverted and, and have no issues with doing any of that and can can kind of like, you know, social butterflies, et cetera, et cetera. And, and Vetti Van Blunt is, is much more on the uh, former than that. Yeah. But he also is being informed and he is being shaped by the, uh, you know, the, the, the judgments of the people around him. Yeah. And, you know, Eddie Van Blunt is certainly responsible for his actions, but aren't other people also kind of responsible in a sense? And not for his actions, but for making him the person that he is. Well, put it this way. Even his high school girlfriend who, when pressed, you know, seems to remember him a little bit fondly, but immediately is going for the societal judgment. Oh, ew. His family was in the circus. You know, he's weird. He's a janitor. I mean, who is she? What does she do for a living? You know, she. it's not like... You know, this is somebody who seems to have the moral high ground to judge him from, you know, it, but it, and it seems to be very, you know, instinctive. And as we learn, she's saying that to Eddie himself. Right, right. Because that's the thing also that that's really tying into this as well, that, that, you know, maybe we don't we don't have time to unpack, but you know, kind of the differences between men and women as well. Like, you know, a man is supposed to be strong and handsome yeah. and a provider and all of these things. And women are supposed to be, um, you know, pretty and, and, and one, a man who was going to provide for them and all of these kind of things. And is that really what people think? I mean, I guess, but it's also feeding into all of that stuff as well. Yeah. And, you know, let's, let's talk about Scully at the end of the episode. Scully doesn't want a big, strong man provider. She wants somebody that she can feel comfortable with, that she can have intimate conversations with. She wants, you know, Scully is not a person who opens up easily to people, who hasn't even opened up that easily to Mulder. But she, uh, at, at the end of the day, if Scully were to admit to herself what she wanted in a partner, that's what she wants. You know, people, I think, seem to I, – I, I, I think people want somebody that they be, can be themselves with. And even Star Wars Lady, what what is she like about him? She specifically says, well, he saw Star Wars with me. You know, this is her weird thing. And he is somebody who, whether or not he liked Star Wars or not for his own sake, he appreciated enough and appreciated her enough to go see the movie with her. Right, exactly. Because I mean, like, you know, for example, like, again, to go back to, to the final scene, because what what that makes clear to me is that, you know, Scully is would be open to or interested in a, a romantic relationship with Mulder. But it hasn't really occurred to her before that moment. Now, is she being played by Eddie Van Blunt? Of course she is. But but her reaction to the reality that 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 version of Mulder, the the Eddie Van Blunt version of Mulder is putting out there is still a valid reaction. And Mm. you have to ask the question, if Mulder was a bit more emotionally available, if Mulder was a bit more um, of a listener than he is, would this have happened already? And I think the answer is probably yes, but it also is kind of an irrelevant question because that's not who Mulder is. And yeah. even if Scully would like that to happen with this version of Mulder, this version of Mulder doesn't exist. The real Mulder isn't like this. Yeah, the real Mulder is somebody who has walled himself. You know, again, we understand why Mulder lives as he does. He has a crusade. He has a vocation. He has given his life in pursuit of this massive conspiracy. I mean... Eddie Van Blunt as Mulder is not going to be happy when the cigarette smoking man shows up at his apartment and starts threatening him. You know that that there is <laughs> yeah. there, there there are things that he's going to stumble into, but you know, and again, it's a cop out. He feels that all right with you know those looks, I could have been anything. Um, that's not the case. 
But I well, because I mean, he needs is, uh, he needs know, a I, mask in order to make these risks. You know, um, yes, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eddie Van Blunt is somebody who, again, his ability to read these women and see what they are looking for and be able to provide that. That has nothing to do with his particular physiology. Uh, that is a an emotional and you know psychological ability, and yet he feels he needs to you know he can't do that on his own. He's not somebody who, in his actual face, is going to go up and chat somebody up at a bar, even though he might be able to do that with another face on. Right, exactly. And that and that's also another part of it as well is that this is all contextual and that, you know, Eddie Van Blunt may not be good in certain contexts, but you know, that is kind of a, a trope in popular culture that, you know, women are going to go, you know, yeah. the whole like hot woman schlubby man thing. And, you know, I am not super interested in having a discussion about heterosexual mating practices. And oh. I, I don't think you are either, but you know, to a certain degree, I think there is a little bit of truth to that. And, and listeners that are straight can write in and tell us if we're right or not. But I think that Eddie Van Blunt could do very well for himself in certain circumstances. I think that kind of the the tragedy of Eddie Van Blunt is not only that uh, he it's not really that he looks the way he does, because frankly, he looks fine. Like, is he a model? No, but whatever. Um Many women would find him attractive. The The issue really is that of, of societal expectations surrounding kind of the ways in which, you know, men and women relate to each other in a real way, I think. And that again, that goes back to the reason why he's looking in the mirror in Mulder's apartment and saying, that's a good looking man. You know, <laughs> it's 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 almost uh, it almost takes on this sort of like mantra or prayer quality to it. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean. Again, he feels like somebody who, if I only looked better, I'd be able to get all of this stuff. But, you know, and especially, you know, we see him comedically failing a couple times, right? Like he can't spell Federal Bureau of Investigation right. He can't lean back in his chair. You know, there, he, he is not going to be a good investigator when it comes to being out in the field. He doesn't have, you know, there are right. things that Mulder objectively can do that have nothing to do with his looks, uh, that Eddie Van Blunt can't do, but I don't know. Again, it's, it's, it, 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 I'm, for some reason I am thinking about the episode of 30 Rock where John Hamm is like a doctor or something like that, who's terrible at it, but because he looks like John Hamm, like everybody like loves him and thinks he's like right. brilliant about that. I mean, that is the world that Eddie Van Blunt thinks he lives in. And to some degree, it is the world that Eddie Van Blunt lives yeah, it's in. True. I mean, to be clear, like that that episode yeah. of Thirty Rock and that joke from Thirty Rock is coming from a real place. But yeah, I think that's right. But on the other hand, too, you know, the episode does you know delve into the the real ways in which Eddie Van Blunt looks at Mulder and thinks, "Here's a man who yeah. is really, really handsome, and he should have everything he wants," and he doesn't you know but but he kind of does i mean romantic relationships but, don't really seem all that important to Mulder. they they seem extremely important to eddie van blunt but you know the other part of it too is that the small glimpses we get into Mulder's personal life in this episode in terms of the the ways in which blunt looks at his apartment and the ways in which uh blunt reacts to the the messages on Mulder's voicemail yeah. um is really that uh, Eddie Van Blunt is also kind of judgmental in his own way. I mean, this is a character that I sympathize with, but I don't know that I really like. I think that's and yeah. He certainly is like a judgmental person as well. I mean, you know, the the two messages on Mulder's machine are the lone gunman wanting Mulder to come over and have pizza and check out their like crazy new device and like a sex worker. And, you know, certainly there's nothing wrong with being a sex worker, but that the point of that is from Eddie Van Blunt's perspective, you know, he thinks that Mulder should be able to get any woman he wants without any hassle whatsoever. And that message indicates that he can't. And Eddie Van Blunt has been socialized to think that that makes Mulder a loser. Yeah. And from Mulder's perspective, you know, what does Mulder want? We know Number one, that Mulder wants the truth about the conspiracy. More than anything, that is his life goal. Uh, and, you know, for him, hanging out with the lone gunman is a means towards that goal. All of the stuff that, you know, on his wall that 
You know, Eddie Van Blunt scoffs at, oh, this is what my tax dollars go for. We know all of that is true. Eddie Van Blunt doesn't. As much as he is a living X-File himself, he doesn't know all of this alien shit is real. So he thinks of Mulder as just another kook. And frankly, calling a phone sex worker or a hooker or whoever that woman is, you know, Mulder doesn't have the time or the bandwidth for a proper romantic relationship. So he just kind of blows off steam in the way that he can. I mean, that is kind of one of the reasons sex workers do what they do, right? Like, that's their kind of role in the world. Uh, yeah, so Yeah, certainly. Yeah, so again, all of this is read by Van Blunt, and, and not necessarily unfairly, but it's read by him as, you know, pathetic loserdom. But to Mulder, this is his environment. This is what he does. This is, you know, Mulder is... I don't think we could go as so far as to say that Mulder is happy. You know, there is certainly enough pain and trauma in Mulder's life, but Mulder has chosen his life, and I don't think Mulder would make too many different choices. And especially, you know, I I think Mulder is somebody who might even consider himself lucky in his way to have Scully, to have the lone gunman, even even to have Skinner. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. And then I also think that, that you know, leaving that aside, part of the, what I like about this episode so much is, um, well, two things. Number one, it, 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 it's very a very, very interesting, you know, inversion of the X-Files kind of typical episode structure because, you know, again, the episode ends about 10 minutes before it actually ends and then yeah. we get this brilliant scene. And then also it's completely uninterested in the resolution of how Mulder actually got out of that basement. Like it huh. doesn't care. Like it's not yeah. important and it's almost poking fun at it in the kind of i think one of the reasons why you 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 know you kind of think that this is a darren morgan inspired episode and i don't disagree with you is that this is the kind of thing he likes to do he likes to deconstruct and poke fun at the construction of the x-files like to a to a a degree that takes it almost up to the line of destroying the show but doesn't quite get there yeah i mean there is you know, Van Blunt does go out of his way to make it clear, like, I didn't kill anybody. Like, I, 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 you know, as much as he has done some horrible things, he has justified those horrible things to himself, and he has not crossed the line that would be murder, that would be actual cruelty or harm to another person. And, I mean, Mulder is, he, he leaves Mulder a lunch, right? Like, he he's not going to starve to death. I guess, you know, Van Blunt knows the you know, knows the the hospital well enough to know that at some point he's going to get out. Somebody needs to go into that room for some reason. And, you know, you assume that just the other janitor let him out from there. I mean, I wonder what Van Blunt's endgame was, but it just almost seems like he was going to have a night with uh, Scully and then just leave because he can't live Mulder's life. No, yeah. That, n- that's kind of the impression I get, too, that, that he wanted to have a night with Scully and then he was going to go fuck off and go somewhere else. Yeah, he just assumed that Mulder would be another 12 hours in the hospital. So I, I think the last thing to, to talk about before we wrap this episode of the podcast up is, you know, we haven't mentioned David Duchovny's performance as Eddie Van Blunt oh, yeah. at all. And it's really good. I mean, I am not a you know critic of acting. I don't know much about acting, but... He does a really good job of playing a slightly off version of Mulder, and he does some really interesting things in this episode in terms of, like, uh, you know, the ways in which he's using his body and the ways in which he's sort of, like, his language and the way he's talking and stuff that obviously are in the script as well, but he's he's imbuing the, the physicality of Mulder in a very different way than we're normally used to seeing, and... You know, Duchovny gets criticized as an actor. You know, he gets criticized for kind of checking out of the X-Files maybe a season before he actually leaves the show because he's bored. And I think he's an actor that gets bored easily. Yeah. But when he's given really good material to work with and he feels challenged by it, you can tell he he gets excited again. Yeah, he's not bored yet. He's still... and. Again, you know, you can tell he finds this episode a challenge. This is a this was probably a fun episode for him to do. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to discount Scully as well. I mean, she is oh, still yeah. playing herself, but at the same time, she is playing a slightly different version of herself than we have seen, and she also does a good job of that. Well, this is, I mean, this is a broad, much more broadly comedic episode. I mean, I have to say, the scene with. Where, you know, this the, the Star Wars lady is talking about, you know, oh, it was he was from another planet. His name was Luke Skywalker, you know, and 
I mean, Gillian Anderson is hilarious as the straight <laughs> straight man, <laughs> you know, and she does really well in episodes where they let that shine. You know, she is very snarky. Yeah, was she the one who who said, "Can I ask you a question?" Did he have his lightsaber with him? Yes, was that, that was her? that was her. And uh, yeah, that that was a great line. <laughs> no, he didn't bring it. And then she's like, "He used to sing this song." I I was dying at that point. <laughs> And I think the only reason they were able to get away with humming as much of that theme as they could is because it's both 20th Century Fox. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who that lady was, but she was really funny in this because she in no way uh, was outside of the character. You know what I mean? Like, she, 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 th- that was not at all an ironic performance. <laughs> yeah, I feel like i've seen her in something else but i, I don't know what i and thought she, she was might just be like a character actress i thought she was joey lauren adams at one point so like maybe you're confusing that for her i think so yeah that definitely wasn't her um just the one thing i am noticing about vince gilligan episodes and again we have this the bad guy is caught like five minutes in in all of the episodes they figure out who did it uh and then he always escapes and, like, I don't know, it always has that structure, and I kind of like it. There is something interesting about that, because um, he does a lot of in- a lot of things with it. He does, yeah. That's something that he's really interested in doing, and I like it. I mean, because Vince Gilligan, in a lot of ways, is a writer who is not really interested in writing an X-Files episode. Yeah, he's not interested in mysteries, both in, um, you know, in this and Breaking Bad is certainly a, never really a mystery show. Right, right. Yeah, well, he's interested in emotional beats and that kind of stuff for yeah, sure. The psychology and of examining these characters. Right. Yeah. yeah, he's a big writer into psychology. Exactly. That's what he likes to do. All right. Well, I think we'll call it an episode. If you have any thoughts on synchrony or small potatoes, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at tuninginshow.com. You can check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash truckaboutshow, which also supports our other podcast, also called Truckabout. Uh, this week we released an episode on the Star Trek Voyager episodes, Waking Moments and Message in a Bottle. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we're on all those social media platforms. Tuning In Show is our username. And as always, please leave us a positive iTunes slash Apple Podcast review for tuning in. We're getting to the end of the fourth season. <gasps> there are only four episodes left, believe it or not. Oh, wow. We're going to be talking about Zero Sum. I know it went by quickly, didn't it? Yeah. Next, we'll we'll be talking about Zero Sum and Elegy. Mac, why do you...